Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back. Another three-man booth. Uh, plenty of soccer this last week, which is great. And I realize that I'm going to be saying this basically for every week up until the World Cup, but I am certainly not complaining. It's kind of nice because like, we had that weird international break a few weeks ago that also coincided with the three of us all doing different things. So it made recording difficult. But even when we did record with two of us, there wasn't like that much stuff to talk about except for meaningless Nations League games. So I am glad to be back. But we are joined by a man who is, I guess, sunning himself on the lovely beaches of California, uh, Caleb Rhodes. I mean, it's more the desert in Palo Alto. I won't lie. But it's it's definitely sunnier here. So I'll take, you know, 72 degrees and sunny uh, over, you know, Although it's fall foliage in Boston right now. So I think this is actually a pretty tough time to compare locations, but it is fairly nice out here, I would say. Yeah, I mean, did you know that Nat King Cole wrote the song Autumn Leaves about... (laughs) (laughs) Continuity. (laughs) Um, Anyways, we're also joined by Nick Vinden, who is, I think, sitting on his back porch again. Although, Nick, is there a dog there right now? So two things. It's actually a side porch, and two, there is no dog this time. It is just me, uh, all in my lonesome, out here on my lovely back porch. The sun is beginning to set here in Tennessee. It's lovely. You know, the rays are cascading into my face. It's a beautiful, beautiful time. And like I, like you said, Nathan, it would be bad for our podcast if we didn't have lots of soccer to talk about on a regular basis. So I'm uh, glad to be here. Yeah, Nick finally answering the question, are you from Tennessee, etc. But Nick, I think we should start with you because this last weekend had one, I would say one real marquee fixture, uh, not Everton United, but Arsenal Liverpool. And I, there was not a single point during this game, except for the final whistle where I was convinced that Arsenal were going to win. But somehow, 3-2 Arsenal, the final, the first meaningful Arsenal win over Liverpool since, uh, certainly in the history of this podcast. Yeah, I think my mood is definitely better now because your mood always lifts when your team goes and wins 7-1 away in the Champions League, which Liverpool did against Rangers yesterday. But I am actually the antithesis of that, Nathan, because there was no part of me that thought Liverpool were going to get three points from the Emirates on Sunday. And get three points, they didn't. In fact, I thought they were second best for most of the game. Uh, Defensively, once again, they were all over the place. Arsenal versus Liverpool was the highest scoring fixture in Premier League history. And this game followed suit. Um, I thought Arsenal were really brilliant in their link-up play. I thought Erdegaard had a brilliant game. Xhaka had a brilliant game again. Um, And I thought Gabriel Martinelli was far and away the best player along the pitch with Gabriel Jesus, that link up between those two, Martinelli, how direct he is. I keep thinking about how he'd be the perfect player in like a revamped Klopp system. And we can probably talk about Liverpool's system because their game against Rangers saw them shift away from the Gagan pressing. So perhaps the Gagan pressing has uh, died a premature death at the Emirates. But yeah, I thought 
it was a really frustrating game from a Liverpool perspective because I felt like even though we were getting back in it, we were taking our opportunities. Um, Firmino scores his customary goal against Arsenal, now his 10th against the Gunners. I just never thought Liverpool in the form that they're in. When the goals went in from Arsenal, you could see the heads drop. Uh, Van Dijk was making uncharacteristic mistakes again. Trent Alexander-Arnold goes off at the half and got replaced by Joe Gomez. Luis Diaz goes off. He'll be uh, out until December. But yeah, I thought I thought this was definitely a turning of the tide game. I think Arsenal pulled a Liverpool on Liverpool. And I, I mean, if you want to talk about statement victories for Arsenal in terms of their title push, this is going to be right up there. Yeah, I think this was... This was a very important win for Arsenal's, you know, ability to continue to get people to believe that this is not just, you know, a young up and coming club, but, um, you know, a team that has, for the most part, I think, you know, arrived and is playing at a really, really high level. Um, I think it's brutal for, for Liverpool, given all their injury problems this year, to now lose Luis Diaz, who's probably been their brightest spark. Um you know, even in the worst parts of their season so far. Um, but the other bright spark, I think Firmino has been, has had a bit of a renaissance this season and, and has low-key been scoring fairly regularly. And he might be, you know, pretty important for, you know, Liverpool's ability to make sure that they're in the Champions League places come season's end. On the Arsenal side of things, you know, I, I have to feel that it was almost great performances all around except for perhaps Gabriel who I think um Gabriel the the defender sorry I realize that that's not super yeah specific. there's only three of them um, in the starting 11 so there's only three Brazilian Gabriels um, in the Arsenal team but Gabriel Magalhaes um who I think has looked shaky a few times this season um and made sort of a bit of an error in this game as well you know so far we've seen Ben White really lock down the right back spot for this team. And curiously, we saw Tomiyasu preferred over Kieran Tierney um, at left back um, in this game with Zinchenko out. I'm curious, Nathan, from your perspective, you know, whether defense is perhaps the one area for Arsenal where there might still be room for growth and figuring out, you know, what the best back four for this team is um, going forward. Yeah, I think in a weird way, this is very, very pep of Arteta in that um, I think there's this general convention in English soccer and really soccer in general that like a settled back four is far more important than a settled like front three or midfield three. Uh, and I, I do think that there is there are some examples where that makes sense, like the like Liverpool uh, two years ago, for example, would be one area where that does make sense. But um you know, Saliba, while he's been really good this year, is certainly still emerging. Ben White is, you know, still in his first three months of playing right back. And and center back, Gabriel, uh, he, I think he's been our most consistent player the last couple of years in terms of just appearances in the starting 11, but he is a little bit error prone. And so with Zinchenko out injured, I kind of really enjoyed seeing Arteta shake it up a little bit and play Tomiyasu at left back which means that he's now played um, all across the back four for Arsenal. And frankly, you know, having a right-footed player playing at left back is sort of defying convention a little bit. But 
he did such a good job defending a player who likes to cut in in terms of Mo Salah, who's obviously a left footer, that I think it really made sense there. And, you know, Liverpool changed up their entire right side, um, you know, before the 70th minute, which I think is a testament to how good he did. So, yeah, I do think that there's still room for growth for, for the defense. I also think that this team is still probably one elite center back short. And that elite center back is going to end up playing left center half. Like Arsenal are still an, an Imeric Laporte signing away from having a, a really good back four. But the fact that there are like conceivably six players who could fit in at any given time, including, you know, Tierney and Zinchenko, uh, I think is definitely a positive thing. But that, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a good shout, Caleb. Great. What what games do we want to talk about next? I feel like that was really, you know, the big game in the Premier League. Perhaps the, you know, other biggest game um, in Europe this past weekend was was in Germany. Oh and yeah, Bundesliga it sure watch. was in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> Bundesliga watch uh, continues here, and as the official spokesman of the Bundesliga on Bundesliga watch. I, I know that I was was raring for, clearly I'm talking about, Leverkusen for Schalke nil in Xavi Alonso's. Leverkusen's uh, first win of the season, right? Yes. Oh, second um, win of the season, sorry. But new, new manager bump for a team that has been severely underperforming. But no, you know, I am definitely not talking about that. It was Der Klassiker, Dortmund versus Bayern, a game that in recent years has usually just resulted in Bayern winning three or four nil after withstanding about 17 minutes of pressure at the beginning of the game. However, in this one, Bayern did take that two nil lead, Goretzka scoring in the 33rd. Sané, who's low-key having a really good season and has been in excellent form over the past month or so. Um, But it was Dortmund who showed some unexpected pluck um, to get back in the game through young Makoko, who's also been in great form recently, the 17-year-old. And then Anthony Modeste in the 95th minute, tying it up, Dortmund 2, Bayern 2. The table now reads Union Berlin still in first on 20 points, Freiburg on 18, Bayern in third, four points adrift with 16 points, and Dortmund as well with 16. What did you make of this game from both you know, a Bayern and a Dortmund perspective and the Bundesliga as a whole as the most exciting league um, in Central Europe. I mean, I think this is such a significant result for the Bundesliga and for Bayern Munich because after this game, you saw the cracks in the armor a little bit. You know, Bayern are 4 4 and 1 in the Bundesliga. They've scored a crap load of goals as they customarily do. They're, they scored 25 and conceded 8. But yeah, but four, to be fair, one, seven of those were against Bochum, so we can discount right. that game. So, but yeah, 4 4 and 1 is not where you would expect Bayern to be sitting nine games into a Bundesliga campaign. And you're starting to see like Julian Nagelsmann got called out. So Julian Nagelsmann got called out after the game by Vatska, the Dortmund executive, by saying that, you know, he's a great quote unquote coaching talent still, which is a bit of a backhanded compliment. And you could tell in the post-match interview that Julian Nagelsmann was like a little irritated by that. Um, The Nagelsmann out um brigade is starting to get a little bit louder there's questions about whether or not he's still a bit too raw to be in this big of a coaching position yeah i mean it's not looking great Bayern munich um concede a fair amount of goals 
even though they score quite a bit, they they conceded two against Pilsen in in, mil, in midweek. So this is not you know a a new trend for them. But for Borussia Dortmund, I mean, this is massive for Edin Terzic to get that monkey off of his back to get a point against Bayern after losing, I think, the past six or seven Der Klassikers. It had been a pretty impressive run from Bayern. And do you know, like, Nathan, I know you know this. Do you know there are just some goals that are, are automatically going to sound better with the bootleg Arabic commentary? <laughs> this Anthony Modest equalizer, and I also think the Robert Lewandowski equalizer from this week too, are examples of those kinds of goals. Because when Modest puts the ball in the back of the net, and the Modest thing is also significant too, because obviously he was the um, you know late transfer window replacement for Sebastian Haller, who unfortunately is missing the season um, due to a cancer diagnosis. But, you know, for him to get this goal, I'm sure, is significant for him and for morale at Dortmund. But, yeah, as soon as that goal went in, I was like, the Arabic commentary was, like, playing in my head. And just how insane the reaction was, you know, the the reaction from the yellow wall. Um, Oliver Kahn absolutely just slumping over into the executive, <laughs> um, <laughs> in the executive suite. I mean, yeah, Bundesliga watch. Bundesliga watch is fully back in full force, and I think this was the piece de resistance, as they say, in a language that's not German. But um, yeah, yeah, I thought this was a magnificent showpiece for the Bundesliga and a very significant game. Yeah, so wait, just to confirm, words. just to confirm, did you actually watch a video of the goal with? I the sent Arabic it. Commentary? I sent it in our group chat, Caleb. Okay, I couldn't tell if Nick was just kind of like imagining it with the soundtrack to experience it more, or if he'd actually. I watched the goal. So. I watched the goal. I was in like a car when I was watching the goal, so I didn't watch it with the sound. <laughs> so I was literally like inserting the Arabic commentary in my head. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was a, it was certainly a banger uh, in terms of it was not a very good goal uh, in terms of just like what actually happened, which was it was a misplay and then a cross to the back post where I, I mean, it would have been really hard for let's actually, you know, what, let me check the XG on that goal. Yeah, well, 0.15 XG is like actually less than I imagined, but, uh, you know, Bayern typically take these leads in games and then don't give them up. And this was something new, I think, that they uh that them to to concede twice in a row uh and their squad right now is again for some reason remarkably thin uh you know they're missing uh lucas hernandez and they're missing buna sar who seems to have been out injured for the better part of his entire like Bayern tenure but you look at you know who they had on their bench they still use uh you know joseph stanisic as like their one of their subs and he's like a random academy product of theirs who's not I wouldn't say particularly good. Matthias Delict has continued to okay. Underwhelm is a bit harsh for someone who I still think is one of the better center backs in the world. Well, Andy went off injured in this game too. Yeah, I don't think he ha- was all that good for Bayern in the first bit of this year. And um, you know, Sadio Mane, I didn't think had a had a very good game as well. So this team has really been carried by Musiala and Zane at the start of this year, and you know it's only a matter of time before, you know, Goretzka gets injured again too, because that's just what's happened the last couple of years. So, you know, Bayern Dude, what continued. Does, what does Gravenberch have to do to get minutes in this so team? So I actually watched, I actually watched him play. Um, he started the midweek game against uh, uh, Victoria last week. And he was like pretty good, but he wasn't great. So 
I kind of understand. He's very uh, lackadaisical. Like, he has this sort of swagger that you get from playing in the Eredivisie on a ball-dominant team and also being, like, you know, the most technical person in your team from a young age. I kind of understand why someone like Nagelsmann would require a little bit more from him. But at the same time, like, yeah, I'm surprised Gravenberg didn't make it onto this game, you know, ahead of Chupo Moting. I know it's obviously different positions, but, like, you don't think you could push Sabitzer to the wing, Mane to forward? Like, that, that's a little surprising. So, yeah, this result is big for Dortmund, uh, who are always sort of... Their seasons contain many ups and many downs at any given time, as demonstrated by the fact that they proceeded to draw uh, to Sevilla in the, uh, you know, in the Champions League at midweek. But Bundesliga watch back on. Bundesliga watch back on. And then continuing uh, our tour. Unless, where were you going to go, Nathan? No, I was going to say... Um, the other, I think, big result uh, this last weekend was well. Actually, we don't even, actually never. Never mind. Um, I was going to say we could have looked at the uh, the Leicester result as well because Leicester have four points right now through nine games. But <laughs> um, I I was going to say the the next big result we should probably discuss moving to Italy where Napoli continued to, to sort of maintain the lead. They had a nice 4-1 win away at Cremonense. But the game I think we might want to discuss is Milan 2, um, Juventus 0, uh, Fikayo Tomori with the goal in first half stoppage time, and Brahim Diaz um, getting the second in the 54th minute. You know, I think this is my sort of mea culpa a little bit, where I was trying to defend Juventus. <laughs> Um, last last week, and I just want to kind of get ahead of the PR storm here and say, <laughs> um, and say I I uh, get I him in wrong. front of the media. Yeah, I I I was wrong, and I take full responsibility for believing that there's more to this team than what there is right now. Um, and this was only obviously compounded by their midweek Champions League game where they lost to uh, Maccabee Haifa, uh, but. Milan with, I think, an important win, but Juventus very much down in the dump still, languishing in eighth place on 13 points. They only have three wins out of nine on the season. I forget what I actually sent in the, the group chat this week because I watched the Maccabee Haifa Juve game. So it was one of the early games on, uh, on Tuesday. I think I said something like, man, this team is terrible in, in some way, shape, or form. But like, Watching them is like watching uh, Burnley play in the Premier League last year. Like that is actually the closest sort of footballing analysis that I can make because they play this like crappy 4-4-2 with a 34-year-old Juan Cuadrado on one wing and a 29-year-old Philip Kostic who's not fast. He's just shifty on the other wing. Uh, like this team is just bad. Um, Allegri seemingly would have to like quit himself. Like I don't think there's any plans for the board to sack him and they they sort of came out and said as much uh the last couple of uh after the after the game against Maccabi Haifa but like they lost to Benfica they drew with Salernitana they lost to PSG they drew with Fiorentina they drew with Roma they drew with Sampdoria uh you know they really have had very few wins this season and you know losing to Maccabi Haifa means that they're now at risk of going out uh you know in the group stages of the Champions League and so in a, in a time when Serie A is as competitive as any, is probably the most competitive of the big five leagues right now, uh, 
Juventus's downfall, well, first of all, it's been coming for a long time. But second of all, like, I don't understand why they wouldn't sack the manager at this point. But I think it could be a financial thing where they don't quite have the the funds to pay off Allegri's contract as of right now. So they're just kind of waiting for maybe like a few months to go by or the season to go by. But they can't really waste a whole season just given, you know, the financial constraints right now and how competitive Serie A is. Like you were saying, Nathan, this team has lost to Monza. This team has lost to Benfica. This team has drawn with Sampdoria, like you said. Like, there's a there's Maccabi Haifa, which they were truly horrendous against Maccabi Haifa. They are, their XG throughout the entire game was only 0.5. So not only, not only are they playing like shit, they're also constipated offensively. They can't <laughs> seem to get anything going at all, remotely. <laughs> and I, I just... I don't know. Like I said in the group chat, like if you took maybe aside from Dusan Vlajevic and p- potentially Angel Di Maria, who sa- who can't seem to keep himself fit uh, for not, let alone like a whole half of football, but like thirty minutes, he goes off in the twenty fourth minute against Haifa. If you took this team, this starting eleven that started against Maccabi Haifa, and you slapped a blue jersey on all eleven of those players, it could be Everton. Like, it genuinely could be, like, Everton circa, like, 2018 through 2020-ish, right? Like, that is the level of quality we're dealing with right now from Juventus. This team is not refreshed one bit. Um, There's still a lot of cogs from the Sarri era, from the Pirlo era, and from the first Allegri era. And so it just kind of feels like they're toying around with some leftovers right now. And it's not... I just don't consider them to be a top side anymore and i doubt if they go down to the europa league they'll be competitive as well because the europa league has gotten a lot more competitive quality wise so i don't know what you do if you're a juventus fan uh potentially you just kind of look at the Serie A's you've won in the past and dream of the glory days but the glory days are over because i don't know milan is not a stunning side this season either you know they lost two nil away at stamford bridge to mori getting a red it card really after... it wasn't really yeah it wasn't really their fault i don't think tomorrow should have yeah. been sent off but we'll get to but that in a I, second yeah what i'm saying is that milan are in fifth in Serie A. like they're not they are not you know in championship form as they were at the end of last season and they kind of rolled over juventus so i'm just not convinced of the future of juventus and the overall quality right now yeah speak speaking of the future of juventus you know a player who's been around for honestly a while now um, and I'm kind of starting to wonder about their quality as, like, you know, Moise Keane. What, what's going on with him? And, you know, could he potentially be, you know, a bit of a, you know, spark plug for the offense? I think he's just a lapsed wonder kid. And I feel like this happens yeah. a lot. Um, like, he made his move too early and then, you know, definitely to the wrong place. Um, I don't think anyone would recommend having your first big transfer come to one of the worst Everton teams ever. But... Um, you know, he put up decent numbers for PSG, but then again, I feel like every striker who plays at PSG could easily get 10 goals by just existing as a forward. So I don't know. I mean, he's only 22. There's plenty of time for his career to kick on, but, um, you know, with, with Di Maria being injured and also 34 years old and, you know, Vlahovic really the only nailed on striker for this team, Milik has been sort of average. You would hope that he'd be able to, but it seems like he's just another, like, I feel like it happens more with Italians than anywhere else, but like another 
striker who makes his jump too early and then never really finds you know finds form again but um shall we move to la liga de campeones as they call it absolutely take us there pretty crap week in terms of champions league games (laughs) um mostly because we had just seen all of these matches last week and again and another weird quirk of this world cup year with all of the games coming you know back to back to back to back uh there wasn't really much time for a mental reset on tuesday in particular there were really no good games except for (laughs) so bad it was so bad uh except for um you know uh antonio rudiger busting his face open to score a last minute equalizer for real madrid against shakhtar in a game which doesn't really matter all that much because madrid are going to go through regardless um Chelsea took on AC Milan for the second straight week. It was an equalizer, not a winner. I think I said, did I say equalizer or did I say winner? I, I don't know. I, 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 think, I, said, I think I said equalizer. Yeah. Um, you can edit this out if you said equalizer. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know regardless. <laughs> uh, Chelsea took on AC Milan at home. No, I'm leaving it in, Nick. Chelsea took on AC Milan at home. And uh, yeah, I thought it was a really, really strict red card against Tomori in the 18th minute because they just changed the rule like last year or two years ago that you couldn't be sent off while committing a penalty as the last man so first of all I didn't even think it was a foul then to have a penalty awarded and a red card seemed incredibly harsh but the game was never really in doubt uh after that we did get to see uh Serginho Dest come on uh he looked pretty bad as he has this entire season um, so brutal at, no he like I feel bad but like he he can't be expected to reasonably progress in his career as an outside back. He can't defend. And that's a, even playing in a back three, it's a pretty big impediment uh, to, yeah. to being, or back five rather. So anyways, I don't even think we should talk about any of these games on Tuesday because they were all terrible. Actually, I lied. There was one game that had big implications. The same day that uh, it was leaked and then confirmed by every person who's in the know that Kylian Mbappe finally wants out uh Mbappe scored PSG's oh, lone yeah. goal as yeah. they tied a penalty. Uh, yeah, a penalty as they uh, as they drew with Benfica. But uh, we may as well spend a second talking about Kylian Mbappe because what's going on? What's well, can you, going can you on is set the stage or Nick. Yeah. Oh sure, yeah. I mean, what's going on is that uh, Kylian Mbappe feels like. Certain promises were made to him over the summer when he signed that very lucrative three-year contract to keep him at PSG. Uh, One of those, obviously, we have talked about that he has sort of GM power when it comes to input on tactics and transfers and the like. He wanted Neymar gone over the summer, which is something that has been highly publicized. He also wanted a more free role in the team. He didn't want to play in a pivot system as a lone striker even though the two players that he would be playing in said pivot system with are Neymar and Lionel Messi. Um, (laughs) And he also wanted uh, uh, the team to sign a center back. So none of those three things are seemingly happening right now. And he feels quote unquote betrayed by PSG. He is quote unquote done. Uh, He is looking for a January exit, which would be, if, if that were to happen, highly unlikely that it is going to happen. It would be, you know, the highest, I imagine it would be the highest transfer fee ever for a January window deal. Um, but yeah, I think once again, you know, he goes away with the French national team. I think Nathan and I talked about this on a pod during the break. And he says things like he feels, you know, liberated 
with the French national team because he doesn't need to uh, be hamstrung by Gaultier's tactics. And then he also no, he's just a, hamstrung by being French. He wrote a uh, he wrote a social media post this week uh, criticizing Gaultier's tactics openly, which you know is something you'd want to see when you're a new PSG manager. Uh, I think PSG have definitely faltered a little bit in recent weeks they've picked up some really poor draws in Liga, and then obviously had a draw against Benfica last week as well but I still think the Gaultier 343 system is working quite well for them overall so I'm I'm I mean I'm I'm not surprised that Kylian Mbappe has shown that he is a massive ego once again but I mean yeah for him to just state that he is done and dusted I think is um uh, I mean, we're starting the saga all over again, and it feels like you know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. And I feel like we're hitting the that point in terms of these Kylian Mbappe stories. Yeah, I mean, he he's just, you know, I think when you're as good as he is from a young age, you're going to develop an ego, especially when you idolize Ronaldo. I think that the actual scope French. of his and our French, sure. Um, but I think the actual extent of his ego just continues to shock me, right? Because Neymar is having, you know, probably his best stretch in a PSG shirt right now. He's probably the most form player in Europe. Messi has also been like one of the top assisters in Europe. And if anything, Mbappe's been, you know, the third best player of the three of them. And I think that's probably what is driving him crazy. But also he should be like, oh my God, I might actually be able to win a Champions League now because we have, you know, three of the top five or 10, you know, attackers in the world in this team. He also went from a situation where he could leave the club for free this summer to suddenly he's locked into what the biggest contract in soccer and is no longer free. And so he's kind of trapped himself. And suddenly to a team like, you know, Real Madrid, who are the clear, you know, leading suitors for him, he's probably become far too expensive, right? Like, why would Madrid, especially when he's doing these types of antics that demonstrate that he's not a team player, right? And he's a bit of, you know, a megalomaniac. Why would they then be like, hmm, we could have got you for free last summer, but now we're going to pay, what, 250 million in January? It doesn't make sense. And it's sad because he's kind of, you know, pushed himself all the way into a corner. Um, but I think this is a really kind of disappointing turn uh, for for his career, honestly. And it's really ruined his like credibility, I feel, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I feel like you want to like him so bad because like, look, he helped Monaco beat PSG to the league title as like a 17-year-old while scoring against Man City, you know? And then since then, it's sort of been a downhill PR trail i guess and well he won the world cup well yeah yeah, i guess he won the world cup too but you know just that but um you know i also think it's like particularly easy to loathe someone who's complaining about tactics in a psg team that have basically like curb stomped everyone uh and you know have a goal difference of 23 through 10 games and you're playing with two of i mean at the very least two of the six or seven best forwards of all time I, I mean, the best and then another top 10 forward of all time in Neymar. So uh, it seems like, you know, this is why we shouldn't give 23-year-olds like hundreds of millions of dollars and control over clubs. <laughs> like, I don't think, like, on the one hand, I, on the one hand, yes, this is obviously bad. On the other hand, 
if you were basically, you know, if your prefrontal cortex wasn't fully developed and you were given control over this massive entity with like unlimited money and power, like that's why Football Manager is such an appealing game, but like we shouldn't actually see it happen in real life. But just compare it to like how Messi handled himself when he was, you know, the best player in the world and had won multiple like Ballon d'Ors by the time he was, you know, Mbappe's age right now. He was part of, you know, the best team, you know, capital T team in club football history. And so I think he should probably, you know, take a page from someone who's been far more successful than he has. Um, and I'm kind of interested what, if any sort of mentorship relationship there is between Messi and Mbappe, although I get the sense that Mbappe does not feel the need to, to seek out the opinions of others. Um, no, but and I think apparently the, the case, con- yeah. Yeah, and apparently the case is that he feels threatened by the president, the presence of the, the by President Lionel Messi. <laughs> he, feels, he, <laughs> he feels threatened by the presence of Messi in the dressing room. Um, he like in signing that contract, I imagine he he felt like it was PSG saying, "Okay, like we we've signed Messi. We have Messi for one more season. Uh, we have Neymar still. We might try and offload him if the deal arises." But Killian, this is really your team, and I imagine Messi being there being messy being that presence having that reputation of success undermines his status in the dressing room somewhat and so i can imagine that factors into you know these complications surrounding his ego as well and the fact that he feels like this team is kind of like slipping away from him in that aspect yeah and i mean i'm not trying to i'm not trying to at the same time no, it's all happening at the same time, too, as, like, you know, Messi is rumored to potentially be returning to Barcelona this year. And, you know, we I think we were all full of praise for the the Campos-Galtier appointments this, this past summer. But the whole, like, player being bigger than a club or player being bigger than an executive, it never ends well across any sport with maybe the exception of in the NBA. No, it's like we got to get Kylian Mbappe, we got to get Kyrie Irving, and we got to get CM Punk in a room together and like just see what happens. <laughs> like I don't even know what to say at this point. Well, that's going to be a developing situation, and it just adds to the backdrop of the France drama that we've talked about on previous episodes. As it appears, they are pre- approaching their, uh, I guess, like quadrennial crisis, um, but. Wednesday's games were fortunately a lot better than Tuesday's games. Nick, you mentioned Liverpool hanging seven unanswered goals on Rangers, although they did concede first for another time uh, this season. But I think the game that had the biggest ramifications was Barcelona's madness with Inter, which finished 3-3, including two comebacks for Barcelona in this one. Uh, Caleb, how do you rate this game? Yeah, I mean, this this was a must-win game and we didn't win. So I think that's the headline. And as it stands, Bayern have basically sewn up qualif... I think they have sewn up qualification, but they haven't sewn up first place in the group. They've won all four games. They're on 12 points. Inter are on seven points. And Barcelona are in third with four points. We need to win out, which means we need to beat Pilsen, which is our only win in the group right now. And we need to beat... Um, Bayern Munich to have a chance and hope that Inter lose points along the way too. I think this is another good example of a game where Barcelona, you know, dominated for large stretches, 
but are so easily undone at the back, giving up, you know, high quality chances. Um, and we got punished for them. I mean, we put 25 shots on Inter. They only had 11. However, we only created three big chances and Inter Milan created five. Um, I think big questions have to be asked about, honestly, Rafinha, who I think is disappointed. And I know he was important in the buildup to the first goal for Dembele. Um, but in general, I'm not sure he's fully lived up to the billing so far. I think we're also very clearly missing, you know, Araujo and Kunde. I think both Garcia made an error in defending Latara Martinez for his goal. And then Gerard Piquet um, had one of the strangest defensive plays of all time, where he was way behind the line, played Barella on sides as he was kind of like weirdly gesturing for the defense to remain calm. And that was how Barella was able to kind of steal in for the first goal. Um, I think the positive might be that we have a player like Lewandowski now who can drag us into the game. He scored in the 82nd and in the 92nd minute. Um, and I think in the past, this was the type of game where we may have lost, you know, one or two nil or two one. Um, that said, though, it's still not quite good enough. And given the money we've spent this summer and how, you know, how <laughs> necessary it is for Barcelona to progress in a Champions League, this was not the result we were looking for, although it certainly could have been, you know, much, much worse. I think you're right about Lewandowski. I mean, obviously, it's not a it's not a, a, a hot take to say that having you know the second best striker in the world right. is you know is a good thing. But his ability to create things out of nothing, I think, is huge. And uh, finally, I think we saw Dembélé's work come to fruition. I thought he had another really really good game after having, as we talked about last week, a kind of insane game in this return leg. I still don't think that. I think PK's decline has been kind of abrupt this year. I think he's probably been the worst regular center back, but I also don't really see with all the injuries who else you could play there unless you want to use Marcus Alonso at center back, which is what happened last weekend in that win against uh, Celta Vigo. So all in all, it looks like barring a sort of miraculous two-game winning streak against Bayern uh, and Victoria, uh, I, I think... Barcelona might be headed for the Europa League, but unfortunately, they have another big test this weekend, so there's really no rest for the wicked, because the first Clasico of the year uh, is occurring, uh, you know, on Sunday. So, oh, also, one stat that I did see is that Barcelona have conceded uh, just one goal from, I think, six expected goals faced in the league, but they've conceded... Uh, three times the amount of expected goals they've faced in uh, the Champions League. I think that was from Grace Robertson on Twitter. So uh, that's sort of like a weird example of how soccer can be uh, unpredictable. And unfortunately, between these two Inter games, it's been unpredictable at the at the cost of Barcelona probably progressing into the next round. Right. And in an ideal world, you know, PK would have never... I mean, PK started the season as like fifth choice center back. And so it's only due to an extreme injury crisis that he's playing However, you know, his errors were directly responsible um, for letting Inter back into the, the game. And we know that, you know, 
his eyes have been wandering a little bit in general this season. I was going to say, (laughs) in an ideal world, I'd never cheat on Shakira, but you know, shit happens. Yeah. Um, So I think, you know, it is what it is. And I think, you know, El Clasico this weekend, which we can discuss now or in a few minutes after we finish the Champions League games, um, is really, really important for Barcelona because it's increasingly looking like, you know, La Liga is where we're going to have to marshal our energy and probably sort of the most likely competition for success for us is this year. That's certainly, uh, I think that is certainly true. Uh, Other games on Wednesday, Napoli continued to just smoke everyone as Ajax's demise continues. Another another win for uh, Napoli, who lead Serie A right now, are also mm-hmm. comfortably through to the next... What was that, Nick? An all-time quote from Spalletti after this game as well, where he pretty much admitted that Napoli play essentially positionless football and they just look to occupy spaces, being, uh, I think, in accordance with the great no-tactics-just-vibes edict that we believe in on this podcast. Oh, yeah, that's totally true. And the fact is that they've been go- they've gone on this crazy winning streak without... Uh, Victor Osimhen, who had been out, I believe, since that Liverpool game uh, a couple of weeks ago. So uh, the goals they've gotten from uh, Raspadori uh, and obviously uh, Clark Scalia, but um, Politano as well, and even uh, even Simeone when he's deputized, it's been pretty impressive. So I'm all here for this Napoli resurgence because you remember how hard all three of us were rooting for Napoli not only to beat Juventus a couple of years ago, but also to beat Real Madrid when those two teams faced off in the Champions League. So, uh, is, it, is it time for me to dust off my my Higuain? Absolutely kit? not. That um. shirt should remain in storage forever. It's <laughs> like one the of the curse. you know when a, so well, Caleb, you know in like a horror movie how they will have you know they'll in, they'll start in the intro being like, oh, you know like so and so had like a cursed chalice or like a cursed chandelier or a cursed doll. It's in this box that you can see, but you shouldn't touch it. And then the second scene is like some kid going down and like opening the box that like releases the demon or whatever. That's, yeah, this is what, uh, this is what we're the doing. Mo- the you. movie is actually called The Shirt, obviously. <laughs> right. Um, but the thing is, like, if Caleb were to unbox this shirt and like a zombie Gonzalo Higuain were to come after him, shall we say, he wouldn't have to be afraid because Gonzalo would, as he usually does, get just close enough but not actually finish the job <laughs> in order for it to be a threat. Well, that's <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, but yeah, Napoli continue to be, I think, the V-form team in all of Europe right now. Uh, yesterday, or sorry, we did see Man City held to a nil-nil draw with Copenhagen, but that game doesn't matter because, again, their group is just so comically weak that it, they're, they're just going to go through. And uh, then, no in, matter what, in, and they were down to ten men for sixty minutes. Of this right, game. and in usual city fashion, whenever they you know lose a game or draw a game, they just wind up battering the next team that they play. And let's check. Yeah, who that would is. that be? Yeah, who would that be? Yeah. <laughs> oh no! Um, uh, but yeah, obviously the other big game this weekend. I think now we can shift our focus to this upcoming weekend because two marquee fixtures this weekend. Um, we Wait, have can, the classico. Can we just give a quick, quick shout out to Club Bruges. Who oh qualified. yeah! Shout out my boy Tejan Buchanan and Ferran Jukla. Um, they who and Simon Mingle. Yeah, who have sewn up qualification from their group. They lead the group um, after a draw at 
you know, uh, the Wanda Metropolitano um, against Atleti, who continue to be poor and themselves, you know, are on the edge of going down to the Europa League um, or worse. So I just wanted to get that out of the way because Club Bruges are definitely the kind of, uh, you know, fairy tale story from this season so far. Yes, four clean sheets now in the Champions League for Simon Mingle. I don't think any of us saw that coming. So shout out to Club Brugge, who have not lost a Champions League game since I visited their stadium. So I'm sort of like the anti-Caleb <laughs> shirt uh, in that case. But yeah, this weekend we have Man City taking on Liverpool and we have the Classico. Let's start with City-Liverpool because we had that nice lead-in. This game has obviously had a lot of meaning for pretty much every time these two teams have met in the last three or four years. In fact, this is probably the least meaningful game between these two teams in a long time, if only because Liverpool find themselves 13 points off of City's pace right now through uh, their first eight games of the season. Liverpool do have a game in hand in that total, but Nick, I would ask you how confident you are in this game, but I feel like the answer is minimally. I am minimally confident. I don't think we're going to win. I do think, however, we showed some signs of adaptation against Rangers that I thought were quite promising. Liverpool are now sporting a very lovely 4-4-2 formation with Darwin Nunes and Mo Salah being a narrow two at the tip of the spear. Um, Roberto Firmino, I mean, Roberto Firmino and Nunez started that game, but then Salah came on, um, replaced Firmino, and then scored the fastest hat-trick in Champions League history in just over six minutes. Uh, Firmino was brilliant uh, starting the game. Jota came off and had a hat-trick of assists as well. And so the Liverpool attackers are rounding their way into form, including Darwin Nunez, who, had, who has three goals and four. So I think from an attacking point of view, this 4-4-2 is going to open up Liverpool a little more defensively however Liverpool are still extremely shaky I thought Joe Gomez was quite impressive in the second half against Arsenal and also against Rangers providing an assist as well for Firmino's goal so Liverpool are still trying to work things out in this new formation they are not pressing nearly as much I think because Klopp knows that this midfield tandem of Fabinho and Jordan Henderson or Thiago and Fabinho or Thiago or Henderson can't quite do the load of a three-person press. Uh, Harvey Elliott came on and had a good cameo as well. So Liverpool, after the Rangers game, are probably in a feel-good mood. Uh, they're feeling a little more confident in their new formation. However, City are just a juggernaut this season, and they're going to come into Anfield off the back of drawing that game in midweek, wanting to put things right. And when City drop a game, they usually rebound by battering a team 4 or 5 nil. I don't think it'll be 4 or 5 nil Anfield, but I'm just not convinced that the defensive fragility that Liverpool show at the beginning of every single game, it looks like conceding first is going to um, do much against an Erling Holland who is in the form of, of his career right now and potentially in the best form of any player that we have seen in the Premier League in recent seasons. Uh, City in these big games have been magnificent. Um, and I think it's going to be about to see whether or not Liverpool, as they are right now in their current state, um, can do enough to not get rolled. I will say, I feel like everybody, every other team's fan base in the Premier League is definitely rooting for Liverpool. And I think that this is one of those fixtures where form kind of goes out the window, in my view. Um, and I think, frankly, the fact that Liverpool have started to shift tactically um, might make this game, you know, a little less 
predictable. And, and honestly, we might be at the point in Liverpool's form um, where they feel like a little unshackled um, because like they really just got to try anything. I, I think City are likely to, to win. That's not, um, you know, a, a really ballsy prediction. Um, but I think there's another scenario where Liverpool are able to sort of nab a point in a fun 2-2 kind of game, um, much to sort of, I'm sure, Nathan's, you know, relief and enjoyment. Yeah, no, I mean, I would hope so. But City also rested Holland for the first time uh, this season at the midweek. Uh, you know, he only has the casual 15 goals and three assists in nine Premier League games so far. And I'm sure he's looking at how the back four of Liverpool have been playing and sort of licking his chops because if Gabriel Martinelli and, and Gabriel Jesus can score, I would imagine Holland will be able to find the score sheet. But, um, you know, you also have a, a City back four that changes a lot, as we talked about at the beginning of the show. So hopefully it's an entertaining game. Hopefully Liverpool can take one or three points off of City because realistically, it's sort of just a matter of time before Arsenal lose, you know, two of three games and then, you know, City just put their foot on the gas and have the league wrapped up by late January. So I'm certainly hopeful that this game can throw a wrench into things. But uh, first versus second in Spain, as if the Clasico needed any more weight to it. Caleb, Barcelona have conceded one goal in La Liga so far this season, but they come up against a Real Madrid team that have not lost this season. How confident are you that Barcelona come away with a point or three points from this game? Yeah, I mean, I think we're away in Madrid, so that's always a tough scenario. I think Barcelona come in, you know, needing this result or needing something from this more than Madrid, given our struggles um, in Europe. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see, you know, what the defense actually looks like this year. I think I'm not sure there have been too many games where we've seen sort of the same Barcelona defense. Um, I have no idea who's going to start at left back. I think it'd be interesting to see if, you know, young Balde gets sort of picked for this game. I'm curious to see whether Fati might get a start over Rafinha um, and move Dembele to the right wing. Um, I think there's a chance that Kunde might be available, but um, he probably won't be risked for the start, which means we're likely to see sort of the PK-Garcia tandem again. I'm pretty confident we can get um, a point. I think one of the things working in our favor is the fact that Courtois is still... Um, out injured, I believe. Um, and I think going from someone who's probably been, you know, the top goalkeeper over the past, you know, calendar year or so, um, to sort of their backup Lunin, who, as far as I can tell, is sort of fine, but not spectacular, um, I think definitely opens things up a little bit. Um, but I think in general, uh, Madrid are probably the more likely team to win this game, just given the fact that they're I think a little more settled overall um, and, and are playing at home. But I think this should be a fairly competitive game and I'm, I'm looking forward to it for sure. What do you guys think? Yeah, and Madrid were able to rest some players in midweek against Shakhtar. No Alaba, no Vinicius. They both came on. Uh, Luka Modric came on as well. Uh, Chuameni started, but Kamavinga did not. And so I think Madrid are able to you know, bring some players back into the fold who they were able to give a bit of a rest. You know, Benzema is back starting games for Real Madrid. He didn't look especially brilliant against Shakhtar, but, you know, the Clasico is El Clasico, and Karim Benzema produces the goods. I think this is a game that is tailor-made for a player like Robert Lewandowski, if you want to talk about, um, you know, someone who can produce 
in these big moments that Barcelona will absolutely need him to do. I think if they can get the ball to him in these advanced positions, I think in certain games of Clasico's yore, particularly in the past few seasons, we've seen Barcelona be the better team throughout the 90 minutes, but not be able to put away put away the chances. And I think Robert Lewandowski is going to be able to put away those chances. I think it is going to come down to, yeah, defensively for Barcelona against, you know, a refreshed Vinicius, a, a somewhat refreshed Benzema, and then, you know, Valverde back there on the right wing, always causing issues. Uh, yeah, I think Madrid go into this being a bit more settled. Uh, however, I think Barcelona have a bit more pieces like Dembele, Lewandowski. I think Pedri and Gavi have been consistent throughout the campaign. So I I could also see a score draw in this one as well. No, I think those are some big some big matches that will definitely keep us um, you know, occupied on the weekend. Unfortunately, they overlap on Sunday, which is always That's tough. true. Um, also, oh, also Union Berlin takes on Dortmund uh, as well. That's so that true. Could be, that could be a fun a one. Top, top of the table tilt, and Bayern Munich play Freiburg. Another top of the table tilt. Oh, I like the, the big four. Freiburg. Caleb just, Caleb just made. Yeah, Caleb just made that German team into a French team. Like, oh la la! I love it, the Freiburg. So now <laughs> Nathan, Nathan has Vestam. Caleb has Freiburg. <laughs> Freiburg. Yeah. And now, I, now yeah. all, all it needs Nick's, to happen is for me to miss gonna come up with that. as well. Uh, PSG Marseille. So over oh, under the over under six red cards. Over oh, under like, projectiles yeah. from the audience. Um, <laughs> At Thirty times. <laughs> like yeah, very very high. <laughs> very high. Uh, this is the game last well, year that there was like the picture of like police with riot shields like protecting Neymar yeah. at a corner flag. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. Indeed, indeed. indeed. Um. <laughs> all right, well, we'll keep an eye on all of those things, and hopefully next week's European, or actually, there is no Europe, there's no European soccer next week, but it is a league match week for everyone except for Arsenal, who will play PSV to make up that Europa League game that got postponed ah. when the Queen died. So we will have plenty of midweek soccer to talk about with most of our teams having a double match week of some sort, including Liverpool, West Ham. So, with that being said, <laughs> with that being said, we're a big fan of coming full circle here. Uh, I've been Nathan Strauss, Caleb Rhodes. Yeah, this time. <laughs> I'm see you all next time.